0: It's the first Friday of the month, which means that it's time for the next episode of Finally Friday, bringing you insights and discussions from around the world, focusing on experimental archaeology, ancient technology, archaeological open-air museums and interpretation. Hello and welcome to Finally Friday. My name is Phoebe Baker. And today I am joined by two specialists from our Exoc community, focusing on Neolithic house reconstruction and daily life in the Late Neolithic. A new project, financed by the Dutch Research Council, NWO, entitled Putting Life into Late Neolithic Houses, coordinated by Leiden University, aims to reconstruct aspects of daily life during the Neolithic Fleidingen period, circa 3400 to 2500 BC. The project runs from 2021 to 2025 and uses experimental archaeology and materials analysis to help create detailed biographical narratives of objects involved in domestic and subsistence settings. The project has already made exciting progress, including the reconstruction of a dugout canoe and various other experiments like working. Annalie van Hein is a Professor of Archaeological Material Culture and Artifact Studies at Leiden University and is the principal investigator for putting life into late ne- Neolithic houses. Annelie's research focuses on prehistoric technology, ancient craft and material studies like microwear analysis. She founded and runs the Laboratory for Material Culture Studies at Leiden University and she has extensive experience with reconstructing the past and previously helped to design and construct a Neolithic house at Hostelwald. Diederik Pomstra has over 20 years of experience in experimental archaeology, ancient technology and public outreach. His skills in experimental reconstruction, such as flintknapping and boneworking, are invaluable to the Putting Late Into Neolithic Houses project, for which he will be making many of the tools. Like Anna Lu, Diederik was also a big part of the Hostelworld House reconstruction. So, welcome to both of you, and thank you very much for joining me. This sounds like a really, really interesting project, and I'm excited to hear more about it. So just to start, I've got a quick question. Why have you started a whole new project about the finding period? Do you want to start, Annelou?
1: Sure. Well, I've never been interested in gold and palaces, but rather in the simple domestic life of regular people. And I have always been very interested in wetlands. This is where I had my first excavation, in the northwest coast of the United States with Dale Grouse, who is also known at Exarch. So that always stuck with me. And the Fleininger culture, the sites of the Fleininger culture are basically located in the rhine meuse Delta, so in wetlands context. And one of the sites of this period was the focus of my PhD thesis of 1990, so a long time ago. I've always continued to be interested in this material and always wanted to go back to it. So that's why we started these housing projects as well, like Korsovold and now the Fleininger who fuller projects.
2: And I think the Flanninger culture is very exciting, isn't it, Ando? because we know actually not so much about it. I mean, we know the pottery, but many other things are kind of very. I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of variation in the Lysic material, but also in the location at which these sites are situated. And we also find material culture from further inland. So there is clearly some relationship between people living in these coastal wetland environments and the people further inland. And one of the goals of the project is to get a little bit more grasp on that through, for example, the study of Lysic resources. What kind of raw materials were they using? also photography, so the chemical composition of the clays that were used for that pottery. This way we try to situate a little bit this so-called Weinecke culture between the other archaeological cultures that we can differentiate.
2: What I also find is very interesting, that's kind of an in-between hunting, gathering and uh, agriculture way of living. So they did some husbandry and they were growing some cereals But they're also very dependent still on hunting and gathering. So you get that nice blending of different ways of life. That's also very fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's certainly the case. They sound like really interesting reasons to be starting a new project. I was wondering, the combination of experimental archaeology and microware analysis and residue analysis sounds really interesting as part of the project. Could you talk a little bit more about the techniques that you plan to use and also why learning about object biographies can be helpful for this kind of project?
1: Well, microanalysis is a way to get some insight into hidden technologies. Hidden, because especially organic materials are often not preserved in archaeological context. So we know very, very little about that component of past people technological system. Whereas we are more and more aware that the organic component, the textiles, the basketry, bone and antler, shells, all those kind of materials that are hardly ever preserved, constituted one of the most important aspects of most people's life. And wood, let's not forget wood either. So many, many tools were made of these materials. Many crafts involved these organic materials. And through study of the traces of wear on flint, for example, we can link these use wear traces to past activities. We do that. We're doing a lot of experiments because those traces are not clear in and by themselves. They only tell their stories by a comparison to our experimental tools. So we harvest a field of einkorn, for example, with a flint sickle, and then we compare the traces we see on that with the ones we observe on archeological sickles or on archeological tools, which we can then interpret as sickles if the wear traces are sufficiently similar. So that's why it's very closely linked Why we have to do a lot of experiments in order to be able to carry out a uh, microware useware analysis. And that also applies to residue studies. Uh, residue studies often involves more chemical analysis, which is also part of this project. Uh, there will be organic residue analysis done at York University by Oliver Craig and his students to know a little bit more about the cuisine, uh, trying to understand the recipes. Oliver is working closely with Lucy Kubiak, who uses the scanning electron microscope to look at residues, so more macroscopic residues that she sees in the charred remains in pottery. That sounds really interesting. Thank you.
0: You've talked about your experiments a little bit. For everything you make as part of the project, do you always use authentic tools and kind of how important is it? to use authentic tools for a project like this?
2: The user analysis, of course, we want to have authentic services to work on. So mostly we work only with authentic tools, but not all tools are produced completely authentically. We're not being fundamentalists in any way. It's just what's necessary for the research you're doing. So for example, Anneli was talking about the residue analysis inside of pots. And so we made pots comparable to flooding and go pots. So not prior to too high temperatures and with the right kind of temper and the right kind of clay. And then we use those pots to do the cooking experiments. So we have the walls absorbing ingredients of the, the meals that are being cooked uh, in a way that will be comparable to the, the way it was in the past. And the same with the uh, wind or stone axes. They've surfaces, ground on sandstone, so that the traces that were developed by use will be comparable. So that's important. And we're also very interested, of course, in the biography of the tool. How are the tools made? Where do the materials come from? How did the tools get blunt or break or discarded or that kind of thing? And of course, for that, you need to have authentic tools that you can work with. So it can actually have a biography that would be interesting to study. So it would be very important to have authentic tools to a certain degree.
1: I think so too. I think it's absolutely essential. And when I first started doing microanalysis, I often made my own little simple tools, which are not really as usable as when you make proper, real good tools, which is why I came across Diederik and we met, because I needed the Stone Age craftsman to make hafts in the proper way, to make really good tools that we could use in a realistic way. Only when you use tools in a realistic way can you indeed understand also some of their biographies. How fast do they wear out? Do they need sharpening? What are the anomalies when objects are being deposited? For example, in a very battered way, they may have destroyed some of these edges of, for example, flint because of ritual reasons. We sometimes forget that usable tools, tools that are still perfectly in good shape, can be intentionally deposited. So all these kind of aspects of these objects, we can only understand them when we really use proper authentic tools and use them as much as possible, which is one reason why we have experienced craft people in this project in a realistic way.
2: When we're doing other experiments, we also found that there's a difference when, for example, students are doing the experiments, say cutting down a tree or cleaning a skin or anything. And when someone who's more used to doing this is doing it. So you get different traces, right on the loop?
1: Yes, yeah, sometimes, although I think in these house reconstructions we did over the years, I'm often surprised how fast students and volunteers learn. They will never be the same as you and Leo Wolterbeek, who is our wood expert and knows how to make all these houses. But we had some really fantastic wood choppers, also women who could do it really fast and who did it really well. But we differentiate between the tools used by our expert users and the tools we give to students and volunteers to use. That way we can compare them a bit. And indeed, certainly in the beginning, tools of novices are much more better. They break the axes, etc., etc. There's a lot more damage in general.
0: Thank you. So kind of connected to that, actually, is I was going to ask about how important you think experience in experimental archaeology is for this kind of project. And also connected to that, I wondered if you could touch on the collaboration that you've got going on between both academic and non-academic participants in the project. It would be really interesting to hear about the people that you've got involved.
2: Uh, That's a really cool part of this project because there's a a large team from scientists from different angles and also non-scientists, volunteers. There are skilled workers. It was really cool when we were first gathered together and, and discussed during the weekend when we were out, well, what are we going to do with the project? How are we going to learn from each other? And it just happened. There were discussions on certain subjects, canoe building or any other thing. And, and while well, one person would come in and talk about what kind of trees were growing, probably growing where, and when to harvest them and which tools would be uh, the most useful. And so everyone was contributing from their own specialization, from their own field of experience. And so we got discussions going and everyone was learning from each other. So that was really cool. A very team, the importance of skilled people. That's important too, because like Anlu was already saying, you want to do actualistic experiments. So we want to have those axes be really used to cut down those trees, to get traces on them that are useful to study. And for them to be good, they have to be made well. So they don't drop out of the handle all the time and you want the axes to be made from the right stone and everything. But that also includes, like we were just discussing, some experience in using them. And like Anlu was saying, students learn very fast and It was also very interesting to see that actually building those houses isn't really that extremely complicated. I mean, they are pretty straightforward things. So (laughs) I think some of the students were, we had them come back for several building projects and some of them were already getting ideas about uh, how construction could be improved or more efficient ways of doing a certain job. So they were quickly grasping the basics and then thinking on making suggestions, that was really cool to see. So, yes, I think skill is necessary to do good experiments, but many, many things can also be quickly learned by people if they're just enthusiastic and students were very enthusiastic. They loved all this outdoor building, fires, making of things. I actually have your hands on materials and tools that usually you only look at.
1: Maybe I should pitch in and tell a little bit about how this project is constructed. There was a call from the Dutch Scientific Council for a collaboration between academics. So in our case, it's Leiden University, but also we collaborate with York. So academics and archaeological companies, who nowadays have a very large role to play in Dutch archaeology, and public partners like museums, or in our case, this open air center Masamuda, So you have all these different parties coming together, and the idea is to make lasting partnerships between these three different sorts of parties in this particular type of projects. And because one of the things that is more and more important is also public outreach. We have to involve the local community in our archaeology, and not only sit in our laboratories and do our our research, but doing things together. And I think that is why experimental archaeology is so wonderfully good because making things together with the volunteers of Masamuda, it is really, really bonding, but it also bonds people within the community because there are all sorts of different people participating with different backgrounds from a housewife with children to a professor. And that makes it really, really nice. And it is working together on these houses. And now we are constructing a dugout canoe. And it's nice to see how the volunteers of Masamuda, of this open air center, are so motivated to contribute to science because they maintain all the documentation. They don't just make the dugout, but they also make sure that the time is measured. They make casts of the tools so that we can document the development of wear traces. We use a special kind of dental cast to document it. They're doing that really diligently. So that's really nice how you can actually do science together with the local community.
0: That sounds like a really nice aspect of the project is kind of how many people you've got involved. Thank you both.
2: And that's also why we're so eager to work together with Exarch, because you have such a, a large number of members and, and people uh, connected to you. What we would really like is to involve also the knowledge of those people in our project. The plan is to, when we have the information, we give it to Calvin Wilson, he's an archaeological illustrator. And he will make drawings and these drawings, they're going to be put out. So people can actually comment on those and those insights of people will hopefully give us new insights to study again and to develop new experiments on. For example, a while ago we were making a large carnage canoe, dugout canoe. And then I met someone who has roots in Suriname. So when he was a child, he had actually seen dugouts being made in the woods by his family and the people of his village. and. So these people or or other craftspeople or just people who've been reading or traveling or anything, they can give their insights on things that we're working on. Because when you're an archaeologist, you have your own field of specialization and you can get stuck. And what we're so interested in is getting the details of life in the past and people can help there.
1: Just to add on to that, I think one innovative aspect of this project is the use of these visualizations by artist Kelvin Wilson. The first big visualization or painting, what he made is about the dugout canoe. And we really use these visualizations, these reconstructions, which are often made indeed on the basis of archaeologists' data, which leads to often very much bird's eye views. We really want to focus on the tasks people carry out, their craft activities. So we use these visualizations as active research tools. And that I think is quite unique. And it puts a bit of a strain on the artist because it requires a lot of discussion. Basically all 18 team members have to put in their ideas about it. Such and such a tree doesn't grow in such and such environment. The woodworker says, well, these trunks of oak are way too heavy to haul around, so the account must have been made on the spot where the tree was taken down. And so the archaeologists come in with ideas. Well, we have some evidence for temporary encampments. They must have gone inland to get a tree like that, and it can't have been growing on the edge of the water. It must have grown inside the forest to make such a beautiful straight stem without any side branches. So gradually we fill in this reconstruction with more and more details, which are not only based on our archaeological finds or our archaeological microware traces, but based on the discussion between all these different people, like Tiederik already said as well, which all put in our skills, maybe a story of their grandfather or their archaeological data. So all these things together that lead to these plates, which we then will communicate via EXARC to elicit discussion because we also will give the narrative about these plates, why we made these choices. The making of these plates, it's very active because Kelvin Wilson actually asked questions, which some of us never really ask because he has to visualize it. And so it's really something that pushes the project further, these visualizations. That is something I personally really like about the project. The questions we all ask of each other and this teamwork between all these different kinds of members within our team. We also have now several students partaking in the project. So we're also attracting interest from beyond our team because it's really, really exciting actually.
2: I've been working in open air museums, Archeon for example, and people always ask, visitors always ask, where did they sleep or... Were they really dressed like that? And what did they eat? What are you going to have for lunch? And that's so much fun to go actually into those kind of details that archaeologists often don't really touch upon, not because they're not interested, but because information is lacking. It's too detailed. If Calvin is making his drawings, his paintings, and then, then he's really showing how people are holding things and what's lying around them, what kind of tools they're using, it's very specific. And we were saying many archaeological illustrations are bird's eye views, and Calvin's really going into detail. And that's what we want to fill out. We want to fill out the details. And that's very interesting.
1: It's also because we lack imagination. If we stick only to the very archaeological hard data, it's difficult to get into this kind of detail about what people are actually doing with their hands, how maybe they moved around the landscape, how their yards may have looked like. We really want to push a little bit the limits of our imagination, which are very limited. We have actually very little idea about what these people dressed like, how their interiors were. So we rely on a few known examples, archaeologically, which makes that a lot of these interiors look the same. What we hope to do is to also push this a little bit further. And on the basis of the skills and the knowledge in the team, and maybe also of the local knowledge of our volunteers, flying was a very important port and fishing community. So that's important to tap into. It's kind of traditional knowledge in order to push the limits of our imagination. That sounds really good. I'm really looking forward to seeing the pictures when
0: they come out. I think it'll be amazing. And kind of like closely connected to that, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you think the advantages of knowing about daily life in the past are
2: well I think that depends on who you are for example my children they want those details they're not too interested how a certain prehistoric culture spread out over the land they want to know what are they eating how are they cooking and do they wage wars how do they do those wars All these details are the most interesting bits, because if you know the details about a person, you can feel connected to the person and the other information can be too general to generate true interest and connectedness with those people. So I think in education, it's really good to know the details.
1: I totally agree with Diederik. A lot of people don't really relate to whether the landscape is filled with the right species of trees. That's for us, very important for us academics. For a child who sees a plate, he or she is much more interested in how they were living the little details. We do hope to get more into these details about life through all this scientific material analysis in combination with experiments, because like, for example, if we see traces on our tools for which we have no parallel in our experimental reference collection, We have to further explore. We have to do more experiments to explore uh, what that could be and how those traces could have been developed. Through doing all these experiments, we also found how relatively unimportant flint is. We find flint everywhere. It's ubiquitous in our archaeological sites, and we're very focused on it. So you have Lysic specialists who think that's the world, which is perfectly fine. But what we also try to do is to relate it to the rest of the technological system. And we find that wooden tools are incredibly important. Also ad hoc tools, things you pick up in nature and you use directly. In our building experiments, flakes actually have been very unimportant as tools and have contributed very little, whereas tools of organic materials have contributed a lot.
2: I remember kind of concluding after we built the second planning house. That you could probably just go into the landscape with just an axe and then build a house because that was the only really crucial tool for the others you could make in the field or improvise. So that was really interesting.
0: That is really interesting. I find the organic material and the archaeological record so interesting and the realisation that seems to not just be coming from your project, but from what I've been reading recently as well. The realisation of how important these organic materials is, I think is just fantastic.
2: When you see old photographs of, say, how life was 100 years ago in Africa, or the incredible wealth of organic materials on the west coast of Canada, the Ida, and so that's when you really see wow, it's huge the wood, the basketry, all these things that no longer can be found by archaeologists because they, of course, completely wasn't away. That must have been a large percentage of their material culture. And probably a very important thing, also in expressing individuality or clan-based stuff, all those kinds of things. Social organization. That's also anthropological information, ethnographic information. It's always is important when we think of how we're going to reconstruct a house. It's, for example, uh, the readings has to be at least forty-five degrees or otherwise, not be waterproof. But then there's also the ethnographical information on how things were made or used.
0: Your project also focuses more broadly on the landscape use and mobility with your dugout canoe experiment. And I wondered why you think this is also important to understand as well as the more personal daily life aspects of the project.
1: We know that the people of the Werniger culture were not living in isolation out in the wetlands. We have material evidence that they were also having contacts with the people further inland. For example, the big axis that was clearly from southern Belgium, Flint, So they must have had their contacts. And so they must have been in some way mobile. Understanding the landscape is really important because that's related to mobility. We had this wonderful two days in the Biesbos, which is a wetland environment in the Netherlands. And then you understand that going over land, going from A to B is not so easy. It's the waterways that are the highways of the past to understand more about how people could have had contacts with inland communities. We have to understand the landscape and we also have to understand how that mobility took place. We are also looking at clay sources, the kinds of flint, which tells us about this, but also experimentally, this canoe that we are, I should say, we, it's the volunteers of Masamuda who are making it. What does this mean? These different landscape uses, are they different people using it or Are they still relatively mobile? Are they using different sites for different activities?
0: That sounds great. I'm really looking forward to hearing the results of that. You've spoken about the illustrations. What other kind of ways are you thinking that you will
1: be communicating the results of the project, do you think? There are various ways in which we try to communicate. It's one of the things that is not so easy because... Well, we had great plans about blogs and regular messages through Facebook, but most of us, most of the team is actually not very much oriented towards Facebook. We actually use our own website to communicate, but I'm not really sure how many people are looking at that. The other thing is through Exarch. Exarch is an essential partner in this project, exactly because Exarch is an excellent communication channel with lots of social media involved. And of course on a smaller scale, we communicate with our local volunteers through WhatsApp groups. We have a WhatsApp group for the canoe, and just recently we started a WhatsApp group with the volunteers for the repair of the Masamuda Flaning House because that was severely damaged during the big storm that we had in February. And basically the storm indented the roof and pushed the house over to some extent. So we were afraid that maybe we were going to lose it, but actually A week and a half ago, we managed to raise it up again. Maybe Diederik wants to say a little bit more about it. It was really fascinating how easy it was. And Leo Wolterbeek, again, our woodman, he's convinced that this could have been done with a family. So with four people or so could have raised this house back up, which we did with a lot more people. Diederik, maybe you can say a little bit more about this.
2: Well, these are those things that Eric Callaghan called findings. That are the things that you were really looking for during your research, but they just popped up. How you keep a house kind of alive, how you prolong the, the usability of, of a house that you've built. I think those are really interesting things. So we've built two flatting and culture houses based on the same house plan. And both of them, after five or six years, nearly all the posts were rotted through. Doesn't matter what kind of wood we were using, they were all rotten through. So that's also the reason why this house that the Anu just mentioned was pushed over by the storm. But then you start thinking, well, I really need this house, so how am I going to fix it. So one of the things we found at the first house was that it's very easy to replace posts. So you can just dig one post up, put another one in, and you can do that for a long time. So that makes a house live a lot longer. And this, when it was pushed over by the storm, that was really funny because the walls were standing at a rather acute angle. You think this house is completely finished, but Leo decided to put three or four ropes on the gable where the posts were and they put some people there to pull. And on the inside, we had four sticks under the horizontal beam that's running over the wall. And we just, together, we just pushed it up and it was so easily done. It didn't take a lot of strength. We're doing it with, I think, 12 people or so. That was very easy, just with levers and ropes being pulling and pushing. And then the house went up again and now it's standing straight again. And we just replaced some posts and it will be fine for a while. So that gives a completely different view of how long a prehistoric house could be in use. And that's what I really, really like about these kind of actualistic experiments. You're doing something and you really need what you've been making. And so you wanted to use it longer and then you're going to explore, what can I do to make it work? And that's where you find these things.
1: Yeah, it was funny because at first you think, oh my goodness, we are losing the house, which is the focus of this big project. Then you think, ah, actually, it's kind of a little present from a scientific point of view, because this way we could explore a part of house biographies, which is our interest. It was a part that you could never mimic. I mean, this is chance. It was really illuminating also because it was done after preparation. In three minutes, the house standing upright again. It was only one morning of preparation. and the afternoon, we raised it up. We also learned a lot about the structure and what would have prevented this to happen, apart from regularly replacing those rotten posts. So we added some extra elements. We also saw a fault in our thinking about the wall plates, these horizontal plates. They could have been placed in another way, which would have prevented this maybe. So it's really interesting. This was a funny little present we got from nature. A big, huge storm that added a lot to our insights about construction and about the biography of these houses.
2: And then you go into those details that we mentioned, the ones that we are after. So like those wall plates, Anneli was saying, so, well, in the next drawing, Kelvin can draw a different kind of structure for the wall plate. And when people ask questions, why is there a connection off there? You can explain this. It would be logical because, and the same thing happened when we were doing a cooking experiment to create pots for a, a reference collection. We were cooking outside because of the Corona restrictions in the wintertime, with quite a wind blowing, and we we're cooking in these pots. And then those flakes kept popping off the walls of the pots, which was really, really strange. But then we thought, of course, it's because of the great temperature stress that you get from the cold wind blowing through the fire and then cooling down the pots way too quickly. So you get these typical flakes popping off that you get in where you're also firing pots and there's a problem with the heat. The same thing happened here. And then, oh, of course. And then, you know, or at least it gives a clue that probably people weren't cooking outside on winter days because of the your pots. <laughs> so these are really funny things. And these too, you can put them in the drawings in the artist's work and talk about them to people so in the winter time don't sit outside with your pottery
0: what unique and interesting insights to get from the storm and then from coronavirus that's a super cool aspect of the project <laughs>
2: Again, you get these things when you do actualistic experiments. You would never have gotten these results when you do uh, 3D reconstructions or laboratory settings. You have to go out there and get into the elements and get into the landscape, and then you can get details. And of course, it may not actually have happened. It may not be exactly true, but it gives information. It gives details for the audience, for the public. When you tell them about people in the late Neolithic. These were the kind of things that could have been there, could have happened to them. Problems that they could have solved in this other way. That's that makes a story.
1: This brings me to something in another project that I was involved in about Celtic pottery. We basically wanted the pots that we had been using to be broken into shirts for trampling experiments to see what kind of taphonomical processes were relevant. So we could have done that in the lab. But instead, with the team of that project, uh, it's a project called BVIM, led by Philip Stockhammer, From München, we decided to have our last get-together in the Vlaarlinge house and see what would happen if we broke the pots in a realistic way. So we would stumble or fall off a stool or trip the moment we put the pots on the fire. And an interesting thing was that uh, something none of us had ever thought about was that the breakage fragmentation patterns and the size or the shape of the breakages was recognized by the pottery expert as being quite frequently present also in the archaeological assemblage? Hey, they look a bit like what I've seen archaeologically. What is happening here? And that's what's so nice about experiments. It opens your eyes and suddenly you connect what the relevances of what you've seen archaeologically. This experiment was actually playing. We were not really aiming to do anything really serious. We just wanted the shirts. And yet we came up with an insight that was quite remarkable. Yeah, wow, that sounds so cool.
2: That's also why it would be so good to have the response from exact members, because you have members who have done things, seen things. Some of them are a craftspeople, so... When we put those illustrations out there, it would be really, really, really nice to have their responses on things. Saying, for example, ah, oh, we've got a house which was pushed over by a storm. We fixed it like this. These kind of things.
0: That actually brings me really nicely to my final question. What are your plans for the future? And how can we, the XARC community, help to make a difference in regards to everything you've talked about today?
1: Well, we have a lot of plans for the coming three to four years, which is until when the project lasts. We want to do a lot more experiments with various crafts, especially with textiles and basketry we haven't really done anything yet with. That's also important for the volunteers because they are receiving school children, a lot of school children from the area in Masamuda and it's the volunteers that show these children around. So one aspect of this project is also to give them the skills and knowledge to do this in an ever more detailed way these workshops on all these different crafts are going to be important for the next few years. They will hopefully also give us a lot of insights scientifically about the kinds of tools used, about the lengths and difficulty of processes, the kind of gestures, how fast people are learning things. Those are all kinds of questions we would like to address. At the same time, there's also a lot of scientific work going on in the laboratories, the microanalysis. Weidlaste van den Lickenberg, a PhD in our project, but also all the residue studies, the microanalysis of bone and antler. We are focusing on four different Fleiningen sites. One is uh, Fleiningen itself, the type site of this archaeological culture. Hekelingen is another one. Den Haag Steinhof is the third, and we hope to study a strange site up in the north. Sandwerve, which is called cult Fleiningen culture, but which is basically situated very closely to a couple of sites that are attributed to another archaeological culture, the corded ware culture. So those are the four foci, and there will be a lot of archaeological research on these sites. It will be on two fronts, the experimental one, but also the public outreach site and the scientific laboratory work. All of that will hopefully come together in a book, but we will also organize a conference in collaboration with EXARC to discuss Neolithic life. Hopefully also with other open air centers elsewhere in Europe to test out our ideas and hypotheses. So there's a lot to do. We have a lot of things we promised to the Dutch Science Council. But what is so nice about this project and this team is that everybody is incredibly enthusiastic and is very, very dedicated to it. The only problem is that many of us do this very much part-time. And for most of us, it's one of the many things we're doing. That's a pity because it's not the enthusiasm, it's not the dedication, it's not the friendships between us all, but sometimes the lack of time and other obligations that are coming a little bit in the way. So basically this project should be much, much bigger, should have been getting at least three times as much money to really do everything we want to do because we can't do everything we want to do, unfortunately.
0: Tidurik, did you have anything you wanted to say before I wrap up?
2: Even though, of course, it could have been bigger and it could maybe have been better if we have more money to do this. I think it's a fascinating project. For me, it's a unique project for the setup that it is. So I think it's really nice to be part of.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing where the project goes in the future. So thank you both very much, Annalou and Diederik, for joining us today and for sharing your experience and expertise. I know that I have certainly learned a lot and I'm sure that our listeners did too. And thank you to everyone else for listening into this episode of Finally Friday by Exarch. If you would like to become more involved with EXARC, why not become a member? Alternatively, you can make a small PayPal donation through the website to help support Exarch in its endeavours. Join us next month for another episode of Finally Friday and learn more all about the world of experimental archaeology, ancient technology, archaeological open-air museums and interpretation. Don't forget to follow the show through exarch.net and our associated social media channels. See you soon.